Welcome back to the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today's guest is Jeremy Dever. Jeremy is from the Kentucky Artisan Distillery. Uh, he's their brand ambassador. And uh, I was really excited to have this conversation with Jeremy. We talked on the phone. We'd had a couple emails and texts back and forth. Um, seemed like a really, really great dude. And I was super excited to have this conversation. One of the things that, well, the thing probably that Kentucky Artisan Distillery is most known for is Jefferson's bourbon. Um, you know, people have uh, very high opinions of Jefferson's and uh, it's, it's, they're most commonly sold. They offer a couple of other whiskeys, however, that are outstanding. And so Jeremy was kind enough to send me two of their bottles. One of them is their whiskey row. Okay. Now you can't really see cause it's light. Um, but as you look at this, like this, the detail that is involved in this label is really, really cool. Um, and there's, it's a great story about this. You see the seal that's up here. Um, Jeremy was mentioning in our conversation about how there have been different iterations of this whiskey released and each one comes with a different color, uh, seal on the lid kind of denoting that it's a, um, a different version of the whiskey row series. So, um, obviously as a whiskey enthusiast, I think you'd want to probably try all of them. Um, I don't see why you wouldn't and, and compare and contrast them. Uh, but this one here was delicious. This is an 88 proof, uh, really nice, easy sipper. I, I haven't gotten back into it because my conversation with Jeremy was at eight o'clock in the morning and I figured I'd had enough and, uh, yeah, I wanted to hold off on drinking more of this stuff because I got to do a review video too for it. So, uh, really enjoy this. This is a really nice little sipping, uh, bourbon, that I think anybody's going to really enjoy. It's in that nice area. It's not the 80 proof, but it's not going to overwhelm you with that, with the high proof, uh, super tasty. Their other one that they are making is Billy Goat Strut. Now this one was really cool. This is a 110 proof rye, and this is absolutely delicious. This is one of my, one of my favorite ryes. This is something that I would definitely want to get my hands on. Um, I love the 110 proof for me. It's a great proof point. Um, the story behind it, the conversation with Jeremy was just incredible. Uh, this is definitely one where this conversation had um, really like nailed home my reason for wanting to do a podcast. It was all about having great conversations with cool people and whiskey, sharing their whiskey with them, hearing about it, learning about the history, uh, learning about the process. Jeremy was incredibly knowledgeable, uh, super kind, super gracious with his time. I, th this conversation for me just really was kind of a, um, justified why I wanted to do this. So, yeah, it, it was an awesome conversation. And I think we talked for almost an hour and a half and probably could have stayed on even longer, just talking about, you know, the industry as a whole, in addition to Kentucky artisan distillery, in addition to whiskey row and Billy goat strut. Um, so I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jeremy. Um, check these guys out. I don't remember if he said you can order it online, but if you can, I would suggest getting your hands on it. I think most people, if you're out in the Midwest or South, you could probably find this. I think they've got some distribution out that way. Um, but out West here, it's not on our shelves, uh, hopefully soon. But uh, if you can find it online, I would definitely jump on it. So check this conversation out with Jeremy. I think you'll really enjoy it. You're definitely going to learn a lot. It was a very, very interesting conversation. Jeremy shared a lot of information about what they're doing and as well as giving some insight into the industry as a whole. So uh, definitely a fun conversation for me 
that I got an opportunity to, uh, to enjoy this time chatting with Jeremy. So take a listen, leave some thoughts below. Cheers. All right. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Dever. Uh, Jeremy is with Billy Goat Strut and Whiskey Row. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good morning. It's it's a pleasure to be here and talk with you. I know we had uh, conversated a number of different times on the telephone, so it's good that our schedule's finally lined up and we can be face-to-face. Yeah, I am I am excited about uh, this is my first 8 a.m. call that I've had, and so definitely going to enjoy this one after my coffee a little bit differently. So we're uh, ready to roll here. <laughs> I should have sent some eggs and bacon along with the, uh, with the bottle too, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it bright and early. That's right. Uh, that's right. All right. So tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me, um, you know, kind of how you got into this industry. Um, just a little bit about your, you know, uh, I guess indoctrination into the, uh, the whiskey industry, your spirits in general. Sure. Sure. Well, I, um, I've been in the, uh, what I call the spirits of the booze hustle now for a little, a uh, little over eight years. Um, I originally was up in Dayton, Ohio, and I worked in higher education. And at the time, I was looking to get back to Kentucky because I went to the University of Kentucky. And uh, I'd always wanted to get in the industry because it was just so fascinating to me. You know, uh, the state of Kentucky has such a great heritage, both in the bourbon and basketball and horse racing. And and it's just it was a great state. Um, And of course, I met my wonderful wife here and and her family's here. And at the time, I wanted to get into it. But you I didn't really know how, you know, at the time, you know, if we're going back eight, nine years ago, there was really no quote unquote degree. Um, you know, recently Jim Bean Institute has opened up a facility at the University of Kentucky and, and Cal Poly introduced a fermentation wine facility out there with their majors uh, um, in a lot of the agricultural departments. So it was just kind of one of those things where I was hoping that I would get the opportunity. I knew coming in, even at the tender age of, uh, you know, my late 20s, early 30s, that if I were to get into the business, I would have to roll barrels, I'd have to turn knobs, haul around 50-pound sacks and really appreciate it. And at the, uh, the time of me trying to get in, I met a gentleman by the name of Steve Thompson, uh, who is the majority owner of Kentucky Artists and Distillery, as well as the majority owner of TSS Brands. And he was previously the uh, president of the uh, distillery company with Brown Foreman. So he, he oversaw all the Jack Daniels distillation, all the projects and builds out there. And then his last project before he retired was Woodford Reserve. So I knew that if I was going to have an opportunity to really learn and be a sponge, it was definitely going to be around him uh, being in the business a little over 40 years. And he said, look, you know, I'm retired now, but I really can't shake the itch of getting away from distilling. I love the business. Uh, I'm going to open up a distillery. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. I said, I, I'd love to wherever I could be. And he said, well, look, he says, you don't know anything. I know plenty. I'm going to teach you what I can. If you're good, I'll keep you around and I'll pay you more. If you're not, you're out of here. And I said, fair enough. So, uh, so from there, um, I worked with him and we started hiring some people. And we uh, started off with 125 gallon still and went into all the way up now by the time I left uh, a column still. So we went from only about 130 barrels to about uh, 3,200 barrels is what we're putting out a year now. And during that process, we built warehouses. Uh, we added more fermentation capacity, more distilling. And we also then negotiated a uh, contract with uh, Jefferson's Reserve. Um, and Jefferson's, which was originally affiliated with Castle Brands, which has since sold to Pinot Ricard. And they were looking for a home. Um, we wanted a well-recognized brand um, for two reasons. One is because, you know, the business is brands. It's not necessarily distilleries. 
and they had a lot of a lot of power behind their uh, their brand, and they were selling about eighty five thousand cases. So we inked a deal with them to do a lot of new fills, new makes, and we did a lot of the product development for all their wine finishes, rum finishes, and uh, a lot more of their ocean ocean cast single barrels. And at the time when they tied up eighty percent of our capacity, then we started to reinvest in our facility and our brand, and that's how Whiskey Row and Billy Goat Strut and our warehouses and everything just kind of evolved. Um, but uh, to kind of summarize that. So I was with Kentucky Artisan for a little over five and a half years overseeing operations and production. And then from there, I went to a small startup that was based out of California for uh, organic vodkas and flavored whiskeys. Worked with them for a little, uh, just shy of two years. And then uh, about six to eight months ago, Steve called me and said, hey, look, you know, this whiskey road thing is doing really well. I'd love for you to come back and be the brand manager for it. We're gonna start working with Levesque, which is a wonderful uh, company out of California. And uh, as of last month, um, we actually are taking Whiskey Row. You have one of the three expressions, a shipping port. Uh, we're going into 30 new states, and now we're going to start going into international markets. So we went from about 5,000 cases a year throughput to uh, now we're up to about 18,000 cases in the last two, uh, two quarters. So it, wow. uh, it's, it's just, it's been, a, it's been a trial by fire because, you know, like I said, there was no majors, there's no degrees coming in. So you just hope that you can latch on to somebody and they can just show you. And then our motto at Kentucky Artisans, we'll figure it out. Um, you know, my, my boss said a lot of times, you know, look, they used to, they used to distill, they used to make whiskey in the woods. Why can't we do it with all this equipment? And why can't we do it with all the sanitation opportunities? So it, uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. I'm going to, I'm going to jump to the, what would typically be like a last question. And I'm going to ask sure. it now just, and I've got a couple based off of what you were saying. And I remember when we had our conversation uh, on the phone a while back, I was like, man, there's. I feel like this could go in so many different directions and I don't want to veer yes, off yeah. too far from sure, the sure. whiskey row and everything, but the, kind of in the spirit of like you getting into the whiskey industry, how do you think as of right now with the popularity of bourbon, especially like booming the way that it is, I feel like everybody, you know, wants to be a part of like the industry in some fashion, whether it's, you know, working with a, a brand, a distillery, um, something if for people who are like seriously interested in getting into the whiskey business, mm -hmm. how do people go about that? Or what advice would you have? Because people like, it sounds like a cool idea. And then until somebody mm -hmm. goes, well, I actually want to do it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I know I can offer two different advices. One is this is a very tight knit network. Um, you know, there, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not on the phone and I have the opportunity to reach out to, uh, you know, for example, Donna Willis of Woodford, if I have a sanitation question or, or Connor Driscoll at Heaven Hill um, about a milling question or, or Jeff Crow at Heaven Hill for the tourism center. So even though, you know, you kind of see these messiahs of the industry, they're very humble and they're very down to earth. But um, my, my first key to that is network, 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 network. Um, we're always out and about. We're always trying to get the brands in front of people. So, you know, don't be afraid to shake hands, drop emails. Our, our industry is very privy to um, taking people out to lunch. We love to eat. Um, and we also do a big thing called bottle swap. You know, I always say if you show up to another distillery without a bottle to swap, um, they're not going to invite you back. Um, so network is the big thing um, and not being afraid to approach these people. Um, and then the other thing is, is not don't say no. You know, if somebody says, you know, look, if you want to get into this industry, you're going to have to figure it out a roll of 500 pound barrel. You're going to have to figure out the differences between your yields of your mash and your yields of your grain uh, distillation. So um, being willing to just say, even though that's technically not in your silo, if you can, if you can be privy to all that knowledge and you can bring it all together, then you can really appreciate the whole process along the way. Um, 
you know, it, it was it was fortunate, but it was unfortunate in my path that when I started off in the distillery for two years, I loved rolling barrels and milling and driving the tractor back and forth for the local farm to collect our grain. And then where my professional ambitions were to get more into the brand ambassador. So as we continue to pick up capacity and we continue to pick up customers, I transition into more of the office and the administrative. And, and it's very intimidating going from just hauling around bags to dealing with the TTB and the federal compliance and your distributors. Um, but you go in there with a positive attitude and you just don't say no, you just, you figure it out. And again, it goes back to, I don't know how to do this, but let me make a phone call. And chances are you can pick up that phone and somebody say, yep, I've done this. Don't do this, but here's how you do it. Somebody, somebody's there to help out or point you in the right yeah, direction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, we, we always look forward to, we have a couple different uh, meetings throughout the year that, with the Kentucky Distillers Association, which is our governing state body. And uh, you get all of us in a room and we just have a blast. I mean, we I just have an absolute blast, you know, so we know coming in that we're all in competition together, but we also know that one voice speaks a lot louder. And this is a very big business in the state of Kentucky. You know, we're talking a couple billion dollars a year just in sales, not only and not only in the tax revenue, but just in sales and tourism dollar and people coming in to tour the facility. So we have a big impact and we know that if we work together, we can do a lot more than just working individually. Do you, do you feel like it's worthwhile for people just in general, whether it's like from a, a standpoint of trying to get into an industry or just to understand and appreciate the whiskey more to like do any of the educational type programs, whether it's, you know, Stave and Thief, Moonshine yeah. U or, or something like that, just for, you know, knowledge and information and appreciation facts. Yeah, you know, and a lot of the people that I've mentored and or talked with, especially that would want to get into the industry in the past, you know, uh, the people that I interview, I says, okay, so what can you tell me about this industry? Um, other than, you know, you have an engineering degree, you're just coming out and you want to get in the industry. You know, I'll ask the question, well, have you toured a lot of the facilities just as a tourist? And they say, no, no, you know, I really haven't done that. And, and I say, okay, I recommend you do that. Um, you got to be able to learn the story and what sets us apart. Because at the end of the day, we kind of all make the same damn thing. But what makes us different than everybody else is our story and our history and how we come about. Um, and then the other thing that is I tell people, you know, there's no education. So with the internet and with podcasts and with articles and magazines and YouTube and, and just picking the brains of people. And even I even give a big promotion to a lot of the mixologists and the bartenders in the world because they know what sells. They know what moves. They know how to interact with the customers. And they're our last line of defense uh, for people to really taste our, our products. Um, so there, there's no reason why when people show up to an interview or they want some mentorship and they want to better understand the industry that they can't say, yep, I've watched several hours of videos on YouTube. I've talked to people that run podcasts. I've, I own a collection. I'm very familiar with the brands. And why do you like the brands? I mean, what sets them apart? Do you like the labels? Do you like the SKUs? Do you like the bottle? Do you like their small batch as opposed to their general blend? So it's such a fascinating industry that, you know, people that want to get into it should just be a sponge. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And, and even when you brought up like brands versus distilleries and, um, you know, that I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot of times, you know, how, how, uh, like we were talking about before we started, like the, the rebranding of certain things or, or just the way that things are branded to catch people's eye. And it could be the exact same thing that you've had a million times, but the rebranding makes it that much better. Sure, sure. You know, and that's just it because, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to get it in the hands of as many consumers, but you also have to understand that the consumers just don't like one thing. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of like that Henry Ford model. You can have any color you want as long as it's black with the Model T. Well, not everybody likes a black car. 
So what can you do for cherry or, you know, uh, wine finishes or rum finishes or different distillations, different price points? You know, um, when we entered the market working with our distributor a couple of years ago with this Whiskey Row product, we hit the market on the uh, retail side at $52.99. And it was good. It was obtainable. It wasn't too expensive. And then we just didn't see the cases moving. And then from there, we said, okay, let's drop it to $49.99. So that $3 difference dropped it essentially $10 to the, to the consumer's eye going from 50 to 40 and sales increased dramatically. Um, so it's even little things like that. Um, you know, we had mentioned, you know, earlier, uh, $17.92, you know, it was a couple of years ago, $17.92 really wasn't moving a lot of value. And then after Sazerac purchased them and, and came in and, and rebranded them and really worked with their bottle, if you look at the bottle, it changed a little bit. The proprietary mold altered. They went to more of a gold flake cover. Um, they held it back a little bit, so they let it age a little bit. And then they even increased the price a little bit. And everybody just miraculously said, whoa, this is a whole new product. But at the end of the day, it was kind of the same product, you know. So sure. it, um, yeah, it, you always have to examine what works with your product and what works with your expressions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's a good point. Um, the okay, so you sorry, I want to get back to whiskey, right? I just had more, yeah. I was, uh, more, you know, curious about just in an, as a as an industry as a whole, because it is fascinating. But um, and you were talking about like the growth that you guys were experiencing. And, and it seems like it was rather quick that like you said, 30 states, and now it's going international. Yep. For you guys, like what leads to that growth? Like, how does that happen? And how does the how does that growth continue to happen? Um, after like an initial, you know, maybe it's a rise in popularity that happens quickly, but how do you sustain that? You know, that's a tricky thing, you know, other than the experiences that we have with people in our industry, this is kind of uncharted territory for us. So I know um, Pinot Ricard, um, working with them, which owns Jefferson's, we've been leaning on them for a lot of advice, because obviously they move, you know, Jefferson's is going to move 125,000 cases this year um, with all their expressions. So we're, we're looking to them because, again, this is new uncharted territory. The, the biggest hurdle that we have with a new brand and starting off as a new brand is getting distribution. You know, I, I've often said the world doesn't need another bourbon. The world doesn't need another vodka. The world doesn't need another rum. So what sets you apart? And in particular, what distributors are going to say, okay, I'm going to hustle your product. I'm going to work with you. Um, and then from there, as things start to pick up, then you look at your overall, you know, your liquid analysis, especially laying down either new makes or sourcing barrels, depending on what your situation is. Um, you can say, okay, here are my projections over the next couple of years. Um, so, it, and that in there lies a challenge because you can undershoot it or you can overshoot it. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a constant question. It's a very good question. So I, I don't know the answer. Um, I think I'll have a better answer in the next eight months. Um, but I know working with Levesque out in California, they have the distribution and they have the sales. So those are two huge hurdles that we need in order for our brand to continue to grow and get on the map. Um, so it's, it's, it's been very beneficial for us working with them. Um, if, if you're privy to the industry, which I know you are, you know, a couple of years ago, or excuse me, about eight months ago, MGP bought a, a company called Luxco mm -hmm. and Luxco is a great company. Uh, they do a lot of processing and bottling and manufacturing co-packing and MGP produces wonderful juice and they have some brands, but looking back, MGP really needed a lot of help with distribution and sales. Luxco needed a lot of help with product and brand and also refilling of barrels because if their brands take off, they may not have enough capacity. So that's why it was, a, it was a wonderful merger for them. So now they have the whole gamut. And then that was one of the reasons I think that kicked off the conversation with Levesque and a lot of these other co-packers because they don't have, a lot of them didn't have brands. So they said, you know, and as we mentioned earlier, Kentucky Artisan Distillery is wonderful and they put up great products, but people know us because of Jefferson's and Whiskey Row. They don't know Kentucky Artisan. And then they say, oh, you're the home of Jefferson's. 
almost backwards. You want yeah. it to be the other way around. Yep. It's a brand forward industry. That's where the value is. That's where the money is. Um, you know, when, when Castle sold to no Ricard to Jefferson's and this is public information, you know, they sold it for 400 million. Um, it was, and it was the value of the brand as well as the value of the inventory. Um, there's a lot of brands out there now that don't have a distillery or they don't have a process in place for them to do replenishment. So they scramble month to month or quarter to quarter to find barrels. So if you're not laying down new makes or you don't have an inventory, your value really isn't worth any more than what's on the shelf right now. Wow. And then it goes back to if you have distribution, then you have value. If you don't have distribution, then you don't have anything. Sure. So, I mean, when you're going through that process of trying to find distribution, and like you said, you you went from, would you say you guys were initially at in terms of your- Originally, your, we were at 5,000 cases a year just in the state of Kentucky alone. And so you go from that in a short period of time to 30 states. Is yeah, that, 30 states, yeah. Is that rare in terms of like growth or the speed of the growth? Or is that something that you guys really were um, like wanting to push and wanting to expand quickly and get the, get the product out there in more people's hands? I think that's the goal of every brand is to get it into the hands of as many consumers and on-premise and off-premise as you can. Um, it just so happens that sometimes uh, it just takes off sooner than later. Um, you know, it, it was unfortunate, but it was also fortunate. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the business is based on leverage. Um, you know, there's a lot of brands that are out there that are owned by wine and spirits companies that have well-recognized brands. So they go in and they leverage. Um, you know, their wine companies and they say, "Look, I got a wonderful bourbon," and a lot of on-premise and off-premise says, "We don't need another bourbon." They say, okay, fine, I'm taking my wine from you. And they're like, oh, we don't want to lose your wine. So they're taking our spirits. Distributors are a lot of the same way. Um, you know, I use the example is, is in Bullet, don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful brand, but you know, Bullet has a lot of leverage behind them. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know they go in and they say, look, you know, we got, um, we have Guinness. Every bar wants Guinness. Oh, and by the way, if you want Guinness, you got to take in Bullet. So if you ever notice the affiliation, if you see Guinness on the shelf, chances are you're going to see Bullet. So Bullet is one of the fastest growing bourbons in the world, but it just so happens that they have one of the largest beers in the world too. So, um, you know, it, it's, it was shit, like I said before, it was challenging for us because we don't have a lot of leverage and because we don't own Jefferson's, sure. we can't leverage Jefferson's. So um, it, luckily for us, though, we can leverage a brand that has a home, um, that has a distillery, that has warehouses, that has inventory, that has a story. Um, and, and that kind of goes back to the whiskey row thing. Um, you know, now Whiskey Rose was originally affiliated with pre-prohibition downtown Louisville Main Street. And that's where that story is affiliated with. So it's nice that we had all the pieces. We were just waiting for the right company and or the right distribution situation to say, okay, we want you. And then they call your bluff and they say, now we want 18,000 cases. So now you say, okay, now we figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now we, now we have to make this work. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we got to make it work. Now we got to make it work. So I, I let's let's talk a little bit about this whiskey because I will I think I told you this is one of the cooler bottles that I've seen. I love how it's got like the you know kind of picture of the old feel like said Main Street, Louisville, Kentucky, eighteen sixty four. I mean it's looks like it's really like there's a purpose behind um, you know the the brand in general. Like so, tell me a little bit more about about this if you would. Yeah, so this is our this is our foundational brand. This is the one that we originally started with, um, and, and it's a very much a romantic story. Um, you know, Whiskey Row is the street downtown, which is now also known as Main Street, um, and Whiskey Row pre-prohibition, because we're on the Ohio River. Um, as there was a surplus uh, with both farmers as well as manufacturing, uh, as well as distilleries at one time. You know, there was there was always a surplus of grain, and nobody knew what to want to do with it. But the one thing they did know is that they didn't want the grains to go bad uh, because then they would lose money. So that's how distillation really started to pick up with the overabundance of grain. And then now you have an abundance now of whiskey and people say, oh, well, what do we do with it? Not everybody has a bottling facility. 
So Louisville was really revolutionary and second to none pre-prohibition for bottling a lot of the whiskeys that were coming down all the way as far as into Canada, New York, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and it would come down on barges and trucks or, or however it could get here, and they would dump it. Um, and depending on the variety of grain or the harvest or the season and whenever they would bring it in, they would dump it into one big vat and they would bottle it. So whatever you got, you got. Um, you know, and I often say, you know, the Northeast has a pretty prominence in the rye style. The Midwest has a prominence and also rye, but as well as the wheat. And uh, the Southern states has a lot of prevalence of the, of the corn. So all these different whiskeys from mostly the south, Southeast and Northeastern part of the United States would come into Louisville. They would dump it, they would bottle it, they would cut it to proof the best they could. Of course, there was no filtering apparatuses then. There was no spectrometers or colorometers. Um, and people loved it because every season could be different. So we thought that was a great story for us to say, okay, the ship and port, it's a ship and port town, Whiskey Road, downtown Louisville. So what we started to do is uh, about five years ago when this brand started off, uh, we released the blue strip stamp. And if you notice, you have the brown. So that's our mm -hmm. newest. That signifies that it's a different batch. Okay. So we started sourcing different barrels from different distilleries throughout the country, mostly in the east side of, uh, or east of the Mississippi. And we would source four or five different barrels. And we would try to keep those batches within a 30 barrel minimum or a 30 barrel maximum, excuse me. And we would dump them and whatever we got, we got. Um, we don't chill filter it. We keep it at 88. So it's very palatable as well as a cocktail style. And, uh, and it's great too, because now every strip stamp that comes out is going to be different. So, you know, your maybe a couple other strip stamps will be a couple different batches will be corn for it or rye for it or wheat for it. I remember it was um, looking back from our first to our second batch. I think believe we went from blue to red strip and we got ripped in, in the reviews and, and a lot of the uh, podcasts. And they said, wait a minute, this is different than your first batch. And we say, well, it's supposed to be, and here's why. And then a lot of the reviewers came back. Oh, okay. Well now it's good because there's no consistency. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we don't, even though we have absorbent an amount of barrels under our roof that are owned by a number of different customers, Whiskey Row doesn't have a lot of barrels. So we try to maximize what we can and we try to keep it as different, but as keep it as somewhat consistent as we can and palatable and enjoyable. But um, we, we like the fact and we market the fact that every batch is gonna be different um, just as you know Jefferson's Oceans or just as Jefferson's Reserve or just as Jefferson's Wine Finish. You know, there's a reason that they do um, a, a, a Chapelet finish as opposed to a, um, another red wine finish. Or there's a reason why they did uh, Gosling's uh, blackstrap rum finish as opposed to lightly aged rum finish. So um, we like the fact that it's different. We like mm. the fact. We know that we're not going to be Woodford. We don't have the barrels. We don't have the inventory. So we're not going to get a consistent process along the way, which is good. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand. Like, I guess I understand where people would be coming from if they try one batch and they really liked it and they want to have it again. Yeah. Um. But but again, I also feel like yes, when you want Woodford. You go buy a bottle of Woodford and you know what you're going to get or, or whatever, you know, giant brand there is. Right. But like, I do like the idea of having a little bit of difference. Like you're going to have some, like you said, it's going to be more corn forward, more, you know, rye forward, whatever it might be mm -hmm. um, and have a little bit of variance in there, you know, coming out of the same brand, the same company more or less mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and giving some variety of what you're trying. I think that's really cool. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that very many people are doing that outside of maybe like a, like the variability in the, like a single barrel uh, program. Yeah. And, and that's usually where you're going to find most of your differences on the single barrel. Cause obviously single barrel or, you know, they'll say it's a very, very small batch and a lot of people, so they'll just limit the amount of barrels, but even still 
they're either prolonging the blend for consistency or they're just going to say this is the limited amount that we have um, you know, we had talked previously before the show started about some of the brands and the products that we've worked before. I mean, there is a limited number of some of these barrels within a certain age or a certain mash bill, and, and that's it. So eventually you're going to bottle it all and it's going to be gone. So you can't extend it because now you're racing against the barrel age process and the loss of yields and your blending. And so time is of the essence in this business. Um, so I, I like it. And that's why I always say we just kind of market it. You know, the other nice thing about being in Kentucky is that when we work with other distilleries, if you go back six, seven years ago, the distillery, it was seeing a boom. It was seeing a renaissance like it was with the wineries 15, 20 years ago and the breweries 10, 15 years ago. So the distilleries were always looking to get their hands on good Kentucky whiskey and make somewhat of a commodity trade because they would like to blend Kentucky into theirs. And we wanted theirs. So it was it worked out really well because, you know, we didn't have a lot of money to buy barrels. So we said, I'll tell you what. If you have a two-year-old, let's say you have a two-year-old West Virginia, how about we trade you uh, two barrels of new make for Kentucky? And they're like, we love Kentucky. Absolutely. So we would just do a barrel swap. And that's how a lot of this brand just kind of really materialized. Um, it wasn't a lot of money. It was just a lot of agreements and gentlemen agreements and barrel swaps. And we do a transfer of bond and we make it happen. Wow. A lot of times we wouldn't even know what we were getting from the distilleries. We get our little vials of samples and we say, yeah, we like it. But, you know, until you get a barrel, you know, you, you expect to get a four-year-old yield with 40 proof gallons, but sometimes you may only get 20. Sure. <laughs> you know? So you're, so you're getting, you're making, so this is a blend of a lot of different barrels then. Correct. Correct. And, and, and in that mix is also our juice as well. Um, so so it's Kentucky artisan juice in there as well. So, so you're throwing your, you're throwing your stuff in there and mixing it with other people's yep. and kind of in that process, is that a, um, you know, do you go through and have each one to where you, you know, what you're, what you're making, what you guys have, Correct. Um, is that where then you go in and you're going, okay, well, this could use a little bit more of this or that, like that barrel consists of, you know, X mash bill. And that would be really beneficial when we add a little bit more of that one versus, you know, a different barrel. Like what is that process like to finally come up with a flavor profile that you guys like? Sure, sure. So we we always use our foundational blend in this, or our foundational barrels in the shipping port is always Kentucky Artisan Distillery Whiskey Row barrels, um, which is always a four grain. It'll always be a four grain. So they'll always have, we're going to have the corn, the rye, the wheat, and the malted barley. Um, and then from there, when we start sourcing barrels, depending on, like I said, either harvest or aging or just their manufacturing process, um, they may say, look, you know, we only put about 60% corn in here. We have 20% uh, rye and we may go uh, heavy on the uh, on the malted barley. So now you're going to have a little bit more of that malty, that scotch style flavor. Um, we'll say, okay, well, we don't know if we want to do that with this blend. So we're maybe only going to take about 5% of that batch. And we're going to maybe take 15% of that batch. And before you know it, now we have 100% batch of a flavor profile that we like. And then we go back and we say, okay, because we do it on such a small scale, we're doing the milliliters when we're doing our tastes and our blends. Now we go back and we say, okay, how many barrels do we have at access for us to dump? because now we have that maximum, we have that minimum that we have to do when we go to bottle. So it's, it's a constant evolving process. And, and, you know, that's why I always say, you know, we have great guys at our distillery. We work with Jay Peterson, who's our master distiller and, and Steve Thompson. And then we also loop in a lot of our employees too, to say, hey, look, you know, is this good? Is it, you know, because last thing we want to do is put out a product that either our employees don't stand by and a lot of our tourist guests um, don't stand by. Um, it, it's pretty funny too, because if we're just so happy to blend a product with the whiskey rope and there's a tour going on, we'll take it right out there and we'll let the, we'll let the tour guides try it. And it's a new product that they've ever even had. And we said, what do you like? What don't you like? And we just get so much great feedback and we say, okay, this is our winner. Let's go with it. 
Nice. Yeah. And what kind of, what, okay. Well, first of all, have you put out or would you put out in a uh, more, probably I would imagine based off of the, the size or the, just the yield that you'd have um, anything just specifically from you guys, just specifically from whiskey row, um, not blended with other barrels. Yes. So we actually, as of January, um, we're, we're starting to work with Levesque, our customer, but we just finally released our own bottle and bond, oh, um, which we love. It's fantastic. It's a five and a half year old. It's a black label. Um, and we're just starting to uh, um, do more bottlings of that because we want to essentially stockpile a lot of our inventory because we know when we hit the market, other than what's in Kentucky, we know it's going to go well. Um, so yes, to answer your question, we have. And, and one of the other products that you don't have is, is this, uh, this green one, which is actually going to hit the Kentucky market as well as nationally within the next three months. And that was specifically blended for um, our customer out in Levesque for us to hit it. So that's going to be more corn forward and it's also going to have a lower price point. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find as wide audience as we can, a wide of a bourbon lover audience as we can. And as well as we want to be privy to um, all the bourbon lovers to not just say, look, you can get a good quality bourbon from us at $24.99, but you can also get a really good bourbon from us around $68.99, which is our bottle of pot. So we're trying to lay that blanket to say, you know, we want, it, we want to appease everybody as much as we can. Um, but I, I also find myself gravitating back to the shipping port just because it's such a unique story. It's, it's in the middle of the road price. And we also can say, look, we gave a lot of love to the West Virginia distilleries or the Tennessee distilleries or the Ohio or the Pennsylvanias. Um, and that kind of goes back to, you know, we're, we're, we're working together as all as one voice. Do you, um, like for each batch, like I noticed that this was batch six, do you um, make it known like where some of the other bar uh, barrels are coming from that you're that you're blending with, or is that just because of the change? Does that some, is that something that that you don't make you know publicly known, not publicly known, but like put on the barrel or on the bottle for people to see? So it, yes, depending on what we're doing, um, you know, either on premise or off premise. I know we always talk highly of it, especially at our tour um, when they come in to see the facility, because a lot of people really want to understand the story and how it evolved. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there are some distilleries that that just don't want to be promoted because they have such a niche with their clientele or their state, mm -hmm. um, and, and they just they want to do it as just a cash acquisition to uh, you know to get some cash flow coming in, and we will, and we yeah. respect that. Sure. Um, but yeah, some distillers are like, absolutely, we want to be affiliated with a great bourbon out of Kentucky. Um, and then there's some that are just like, no, we're, we appreciate it, but no, we're good. We're good. Yeah. We're all, we're all set. Take it, yeah. take it and enjoy it. And hopefully people like it. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wins. Yeah. 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 Cause you, you know, as this starts to pick up, we also have to be privy. Now we're getting in uncharted territories that as this start picking up in the new States, now we need, well, of course, we'll always go back to our distilleries that we source barrels from, but they may not have the capacity to meet up our demand. So now mm -hmm. we either have to say, okay, do we go somewhere else? And now we go from four or five distillery blend to maybe seven or eight different distillery blend just to meet the volume minimum that we have. So now you're going to get an entirely different batch. You know, one of the things that we're playing around with now is uh, California whiskeys, mm -hmm. which is great because of the California whiskeys have higher yields. Uh, and in particular in the summertime, when a lot of the aging happens, you know, in California, as you know, it's hot in the day, but it's cold at night. Mm -hmm. So their yields are much better than it is in Kentucky because when it's hot during the day here, it's hot just as hot at night. So it's uh, so now we're starting to dabble in different yields and we're starting to say, okay, our four-year-old bourbon is pretty consistent or at least comparable to a five-year-old uh, California bourbon. One, because it yields, two, because of color, and three, because of taste. Does, does the, for one, like California, for example, does the lack of humidity 
overall in California, like comparatively with, you know, Kentucky or some of the other states south or, or east that have the humidity, does that humidity factor play in at all? And I, and I agree with you 100%, like with the, with the, the days that are hot, like it's still going to cool down at night. Right. Um, so it almost feels like the aging process might happen quicker in terms of having like rather, you know, months at a time where it's always hot and then months where it's always cold. Sure. You're getting a little bit more hot and cold, you know, more consistently. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or more daily. Yeah, you know, it, because it's also tricky, especially when we manufacture our barrels, you know, the, the barrels that we lay down in June, that means that they're going to get another summer coming off of a four-year barrel than the ones that we make in November. Mm. Um, so now we know that those yields are going to be different. And, you know, and even looking back at, you know, at the California perspective, um, it, it's great to see their barrels because also too, you really don't get, California doesn't get really cold. Mm -hmm. um, it gets chilly. Um, but, you know, in Kentucky, for example, you know, we had a week here where we had nothing but ice. So it was below freezing for a solid five days. And, and a lot of people aren't too privy that when you go into a warehouse, just because you're out of the wind, most people think, well, it's going to be a little bit warmer in here. But in essence, it's actually colder than it is outside because that whiskey are like ice cubes. I mean, it's freezing in a warehouse and it's hotter than hell in the summer in the warehouse. So, um, you know, so you're dealing with a lot of that. And then when we're also doing a lot of our blend, even the barrels that we just pull out of Whiskey Row, so you even have a microchasm of barrels of the whole inventory of Whiskey Row, we're going to say, okay, look, we need two from up top and we need two from the bottom. Um, and a lot of the bigger guys also too, the reason they get a lot of consistencies, they'll do stereotypical what they say, the X model. So, you know, they'll, they'll start from the top, work their way to the left, they'll start from the top, they'll work their way to the right. And then that's how they get a lot of the, uh, you know, yields uh, are more consistent, your flavor profiles are more consistent. Because then the other thing is you also got to look at your sides of the barrels of where they are. Are they on the east wall or are they on the west wall? Is the sun rising on them or is it setting on them? Um, so it's, it's really become a science for us, especially working with the Jefferson's model, because, you know, they, they are such a big brand and they really want that consistency. So we say, okay, we may have to pull five barrels out of there, but we got to pull 30 over here. Mm. And Whiskey Row, we may have to pull two over there, two up there, two down here, and only one over there. Wow. Um, so it's yeah it's it, it, so you mentioned you know the, the blending is is definitely not something that we just drop in and we say like they used to do it when whiskey roll started now it's it's a real long tedious process to where we say okay we got a week to really find a good blend mm -hmm. and then we start pulling the barrels wow okay so let's talk about this let's talk about this whiskey a little bit so it's 44 percent. so yes. I, i'm with you that 88 is really nice you could yeah, i feel like you could do so much with that and again i yeah. there's some cask strength type ones that I like, but you can't constantly be drinking 120 proof. Bourbon. <laughs> no, no jet food will kill you, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, you want to be able to sit back and, and, and enjoy something that's not going to, uh, you know, that, that 120 can get you put it that way. Yes. 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 Um, so I love the, the four grain mix and something I feel like I'm hearing more about, um, versus, you know, the traditional, like, corn malted barley and wheat or you know and rye um, right. i like that i like the idea of the four grain mix and i'm kind of finding myself gravitating to more whiskeys that are having that four grain mix yeah. um i really like it i think it just i just like the flavor a little bit better than having one thing stick out more than another personally mm -hmm. well and, and you're absolutely right and it gives a lot of complexity um having the four grains in there because you can also do a lot um you know again we go back to the whole thing of as long as you at least have 51% corn in that mash bill, it's a, it's a bourbon. So now people are looking at the stereotypical bourbon, you'll end up ranging between 70 to low 80s of your corn, and then they fill in the rest. 
Now people are saying, well, wait a minute, why, why aren't we doing 65% corn and increasing our rye or increasing our wheat or whatever the case may be? So it, it, it's forcing us now to, to gravitate to different things. Um, the other thing that we're finding now is that we're getting uh, very experimental as an industry, and in particular Woodford, I know, was doing this here recently, is they're starting to release a lot of different expressions, either barley forward or wheat forward or rye forward. So it's forced people now to really go into a situation where at one time we were only sourcing because of yields and because of the commodity market, they were only buying one type of variety of rye or one type of variety of wheat because of the yields and they can get it so cheap. Now they're saying, I want X variety. I want you know, X variety of wheat or rye or malted barley. Um, do I want two row or four row? And how can I make this a little bit different? Um, so that's been fun. You know, you know, One of the great projects that we did at Kentucky Artisan was a project called High Spire. And that was a very expensive rye hybrid um, uh, varietal. It was called a Ryman rye. It's a winter rye. It's generally grown in the Midwest. So when we wanted to grow it here in Kentucky, by God, we couldn't find a farmer to grow it. Because one, that's usually their off season because their soybeans and corn are already harvested. And a lot of times they just don't want to experiment with rye. So we, we actually went to a wonderful farmer here in town, Waldeck Farm. They're about 1,300 acres. And we said, look, if you put this in the ground, regardless of your yields on this 50 acres, we're going to pay you X. So he had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as he started to get into it and start to understand the process and we started to buy it because we needed it, then more and more farmers started to become more privy to say, gosh, my fields can grow during the winter. And now I have more profit coming in, coming out of the winter when harvest before I uh, either harvest my corn or plant my soybeans. So it, it really opened up a lot of farmers uh, to be privy to a number of different grains. So it's kind of for you guys, for what you're laying down, I mean, it's, it's pretty much helping people locally you know it sounds like it's a uh, a lot of it coming from is, is are most of them coming from a local farming community uh what you guys are making what what we do absolutely so we uh we're located in oldham county we only work with oldham county farmers the best we can mm-hmm. um you know again it all depends on what size fields they have and what they're willing to grow for us you know again kind of the cash cow for a lot of them is the soybeans and corn and they watch the commodity markets. Um, but yes, our corn, our rye, and our wheat is either growing a Waldeck farm or it's sourced some other local farmers in Oldham County. Um, unfortunately, the only thing, and, and all the distilleries in Kentucky have to deal with this, unless they have their own malting house, which I'm not aware of, uh, they have to source their malted barley, which is usually coming out of the Wisconsin, the Midwest area, even as far as Canada. There's been talk in town or in the state um, for us to do a malting house, but then now all of a sudden you have all these distilleries saying, I want that. And so now poof, your inventory is gone yeah. because now everybody wants that story. So um, I think it'll eventually come around. Um, but for the time being, the only thing that we're sourcing thus far is the malted barley. Wow. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I like that you're you're keeping local people, you know, keeping things local. I mean, I, I really yeah. think that that when you start to hear from people that are, you know, making an impact, I think overall with the community, it's you're creating jobs for other people. You're, um, you know, keeping local farmers involved and that now they're invested in the product. And I think that's really cool. I I like that side of the story. Yeah. You you know, and I'm just fortunate to have the title of brand ambassador, but I, you know, I I can tell you that that the, the mixologists and the, and the, and the, and the bartenders and the waiters and the waitresses and the farmers and our tour guides and our distillery guys, our warehouse guys, I mean, those are the true ambassadors. And, and you know, if, if you can get them on your side and they like your product and they work with your product and they essentially have skin of the game, I mean, there, there's no greater thrill for us to be affiliated with people that are proud to work with a product and a distillery like ours, because again, they are our marketing. Sure. Yeah, they're getting into the consumer's hand and uh, watching them enjoy it. So that part's yes, pretty cool, yes. I bet. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, talk about some tasting notes with this, with the uh, the whiskey row before we head over to the Billy Goat. Yeah, yeah. So um, what you're going to taste in this whiskey row is, uh, um, of course, five different distilleries. Uh, I believe it has, and I can even tell you on this particular one, um, you're in batch number six. And if you look on the right, you'll also notice the barrel number. What is the yeah. barrel number? Barrel 69. Okay, so we have barrel 69. So the way that we determine what barrel is, is we usually look at a yield on a barrel. So if we're going through 69, 69 times 40 gallon, 40 proof gallon yield, there was 2,760 proof gallons in that, in that batch. So if you work backwards, so that's kind of how the barrel works. Okay. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, we try to keep it 30, but with the demand constantly going up, there's going to hit a point too, where we got to say, okay, we're shutting it down at 100, um, or we're shutting it down at 75, or we're going to revert back and say, you know what, we're going to do a multitude of different batches, different strip stamps, and we're going to max it out at 30. Um, but in this particular one, on the taste value, um, you're going to see a lot more rye. I can tell you that a lot of the barrels that came in um, were from the north northeast, which was the rye is more prominent than it is here. Um, and then a lot of the barrels, like I say, that we went into the four grain is going to be uh, forward. So you're going to find now that when you take all these barrels, if your rye is your minimum grain after the corn, you're going to have that rye come forward. So this particular one is going to be the rye. You have a little bit of the wheat impact on it. Um, I often say, though, too, because of the blend that's in it, it's, it's always going to be at least a minimum of four years. But I can tell you that some of the barrels that are in here are at least six years. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going to now also have a lot of that wood or that oaky flavor, which generally people gravitate to, especially if they're scotch fans or they like that older style whiskey. Um, and then even going back, what we mentioned, 88 proof from a processing standpoint, this is a non-chill filter product, which for people in the industry is kind of risky unless you're staying in the 90s because you can run the risk of flock um, or you can run the risk of a lot of what we call snot in the industry where you lose a lot of your flavors because they all coagulate. Um, but these, uh, these have obviously very settled and based on the clarity that you have in the bottle, you're going to get as much of an impact with the flavorability of it. Um, I personally don't taste a lot of corn in this one, even though I know there obviously is corn in it. Um, but I mostly pick up a lot of the woods, the scotches, the scotch kind of flavors. Um, and then uh, I don't get much of the vanilla, but actually I had it last night with a couple of uh, bourbon balls, probably far too many. Um, and I get a lot of the chocolate on it too. And, and to me, this is very much, this is the first batch that I would actually design, uh, deem a dessert bourbon for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, for, I got, I don't know why, but I got the, I got brown sugar. Do you? Uh, okay, good. Yeah. And I, what's funny is, and I don't know if, because I've gotten into rise more lately. And I, I just think my initial few times having rise, I just wasn't into them. Yeah. Uh, but I liked high rye bourbons. Yeah. Uh, but I think once it was just that rye became kind of overpowering, I just wasn't a fan. And then I started to like them a little bit more. But with, I don't know if it's the four grain mix that's, that's going on, but I always feel like, every bourbon I have that is that four grain, like the wheat seems to mellow out the rye, mm -hmm. like the spice from it, but it brings out more flavor from the rye. Uh, if that makes sense. Like it, it kind of, it seems like it doles the spice, but it brings out the flavor. So, yeah. And, and we were talking earlier, you know, especially with this higher proof stuff, the last thing we want to do, if we can control the proof, which we obviously do to an 88, we don't want to burn you with the rye. You know, people automatically fill a rye with that burning or that tingle sensation. Um, and, and one of the things that we emphasize too, other than being a good mild rye sipping whiskey, um, we also say, look, if you are a cocktail fan, this is a great whiskey to do it. And, and we emphasize a lot of the citrus style. I love a whiskey row uh, whiskey sour. Love it. Absolutely love it. It has a good lemon consistency. It has sugar in it. 
Um, and then also one of my other favorite drinks is, uh, you know, a splash of ginger ale with a, uh, you know, a dab of lemon. So now you have your, you know, your acidity to it. So it cuts a little bit of that rye out and it really brings the other flavors forward. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. We, we didn't want to kill you with the rye. How, how many, I think, I don't know if you mentioned this, uh, you're talking about the, the label, um, mm-hmm. how many different versions have come out of this so far? So that is number six. That's batch number six. Um, oh, that's all we've done. Yep, that's all we've done thus far. We've had um, blue, green, red, orange. Oh, and I want to say we haven't done yellow. We haven't done purple. There's one other color. It's not coming to me, but that is number six. Um, and of course, other than the first one being blue, that was the most popular because it was the first batch. People gobbled that up. Um, we've actually talked now about doing a multi-pack. Um, and then we actually, we have some barrels because the other brilliant thing is is because we're we're not only in the bourbon business, we're also in the storytelling business. We have purposely held back barrels or blended juice from our first batch of every okay. single batch forward. So now we're talking about, okay, what do we do with this unique style of blends? Do we dump it all in and try to create like a dovetail or a miscellaneous blend, which has become very popular with a lot of the consumers right now? Or do we say we do a select release of each individual batch? Um, and we go back to kind of that old school where we say, okay, this is the blue batch. This is the red batch. This is the orange batch. Here's a three-pack series, or, or here's a 375. Now you can buy them both, and now you can compare. Because by the time a lot of these batches have cycled through, and you buy it, and by the time you're hooked, you want to go back and you say, I want to see what else they have. It's gone. Gone, yeah. It's gone. It's gone. What's, what's your favorite personal one so far? Um, obviously, the, the blue one is pretty nostalgic. Um, I uh, like the, uh, the orange one. I, I liked it for two reasons. One is because if you look at the, uh, the front of the label, you notice that the bottom of the label where the 750 and underneath the, uh, the, the cityscape is orange. So that was a very uniform style package. And, and that's why I have my orange in front of me. Um, okay. So orange, I'm very privy to. And then of course the blue, because it was obviously the first one. Um, and we've talked about doing different, different color skews to match a strip stamp, but we just were hooked to the orange. Um, and we just kind of liked it because it just gives enough of a pop out. Um, an interesting story on the label, if you look to the right of the label, right by the streetlight, mm-hmm. you'll see a little sign and it says Steve's Good Time Emporium. Mm-hmm. So our brand owner wanted, he was adamant about getting on the label and by God he did. So that's, uh, he put <laughs> his name on the label. I mean, it's genius, you know, why it's not? Genius, oh, absolutely. Why wouldn't you your name on there? <laughs> yeah, and, and most people don't notice it. I mean, they look at the label and they say, wow, you know, it's pretty nostalgic with the horses and the carriages and, you know, mm-hmm. the gas, uh, gas, uh, you know, the gas powered lanterns and and if you notice too whiskey row is also known for the facade on the buildings which a lot of it still remains in downtown louisville and they've actually ripped out the buildings but they kept the facade of the walls up and that was called iron quarters so most of those buildings are still standing today so the whiskey row they've louisville's done a beautiful job um to kind of keep that tradition of not only the uh, the, the bourbon affiliation but also the downtown pre-prohibition style era um, where so many now distilleries and bars and wonderful restaurants have uh, have really commandeered downtown and it's made it a great place to visit. Yeah, that it's a that is a very fun town for sure. Yeah. I've I've yeah. enjoyed it and I, but what I think is cool though overall is like like you're talking about the nostalgia and the like the you've got the whiskey and you know you mentioned earlier like just Kentucky and the basketball and horse racing and everything like it all just goes together and I think it's really cool. Um, as much as I love the craft distilleries coming out of other states there isn't anything like that kentucky feel of just everything like everything that encompasses uh, i think what you think of when you think kentucky being like the bourbon the basketball the horse racing like yeah i think it all just goes together yeah 
Well, and it's and it's really been a blessing too, because of course working with the Kentucky Distillers Association, there's classifications for all the size distilleries, and that's based on the amount of proof gallons and/or barrels that you lay down in the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually tiered in ten thousand. So you have your craft distiller, which is zero to ten thousand or nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. Then you have your ten thousand, your nineteen thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, which is your proof members, and then above twenty thousand and up is also your heritage members. So that's where your Heaven Hills and your Brown Foreman's coming to play. So it's nice too that they've also, they've siloed us, but we all still work together. But the big guys very much encourage the small guys, the tourists in particular, to go visit and see how the smaller guys are doing it because a lot of what they're doing is manual. And then we also encourage the bigger guys to go visit them because now you can see the automation, you can see just the grand scale of things. Um, so we really help one another and feed us out and, and you know, a lot of people ask, well, you know, how does your how does your manufacturing facility compare to like a Jim Beam? We do 3,200 barrels in a year on average. Jim Beam does about 3,200 barrels a day on average. So, I mean, if that puts it in perspective, um, it's it's pretty impressive the amount of barrels. You know, the, the big joke here is, you know, a couple of years ago it was 1.8 barrels per person in, in Kentucky. Um, and now we're up to about 2.2 barrels per person in Kentucky. So if you look at if you look at the the overall trend over the last four or five years when everybody was doubling capacity to meet the demand and the boom going into other markets, um, it, it's really grown. I mean, it's mm. you know it's substantial. Um, and, and you know, and we're also luckily too that so many people have a demand for Kentucky bourbon outside the U.S. and not just in Kentucky. Kentucky's kind of a bubble in the grand scheme of things. Um, mm. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the European countries, you know, one of the biggest consumers besides Asia right now is India, and they say, well, India, you know with their religion and the culture that they have, they really don't consume a lot of whiskey. And it's like, well, yeah, but you gotta remember they have a billion people there. 20% yeah. of them consume American whiskey. That's 200 million people. That's a huge market for us. So yeah. um, it's it's nice working with the international markets too. Yeah, that's gotta be cool. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago being in Europe and you know, they've got a different different group of things there that they're drinking. But when you, when you look up and you see bourbon on a shelf and you're in Prague, it's like, all right, let's do this. You know, <laughs> we hate it. Yeah, we, 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 we made it in the beer world, you know, too, because yeah. so many of those great places are just known for beer. But yeah, but yeah it's it, it's great. And, and we're really excited to uh, see it not only go in a multitude of different states and really to uh, to make Whiskey Row a, a prevalent opportunity for people to try good whiskeys, uh, oh. but also go in the international market. Because, again, we're, we're still a craft. We're still very much a craft distillery and we're still very much a craft brand. Yeah, I mean, seeing it out there is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to seeing those. I'm curious now. Let's let's talk about some uh, the Billy Goat Strut. Yes, is, absolutely. I will say I, I, these two bottles when I open them up, like not when I open the package up. I thought these were two of the cooler bottles I've seen in terms of just the packaging, um, the labels on them. I mean, everything about these are really cool. I love both of these. Thanks. Yeah, it was. Um, we work with a great designer and a great label company here locally. You know, we mentioned locally. Um, and, and what was neat too is the Billy Goat Strut kind of evolved because we had an abundance of some just rye whiskey, um, and we said, you know, look, we're obviously we can't put it in, in the whiskey row because it's not a bourbon. Um, so what can we do with it? So at the time, um, we had an opportunity to purchase some Canadian style whiskeys, uh, rye whiskeys, and we said, you know what, let's let's try to do a blend and let's see what we can come up with as far as creating something different. So that's why we say, if you look at the label, it's a North American whiskey. Um, the rye is going to be prevalent, so we um, blended a Canadian rye whiskey and a Kentucky rye whiskey that was manufactured at Kentucky Artisan, and we blended it. Um, and the reason why we don't, quote unquote, say that it's a rye whiskey on the label for two reasons. One is because we can't because 
the Canadian compliance and regulatory distillation uh, community up there classifies a rye whiskey very, very differently than the U.S. does. Um, you know, for example, you can make a Canadian rye whiskey without using any rye at all, um, based on either caramels and aging and or used barrels, or you most of them do add in some rye whiskey, but that is not a prominent flavor. So, a lot of the Canadian rye whiskeys won't have 51% rye in it. So that's why we said, okay, let's do a blend and we'll put our 100% rye in there, which is 95 rye, 5% uh, malted rye, and let's blend it with the Canadian rye. So that's why it's a little bit of a sweeter rye. So it's gonna be corn. Um, I always affiliate this, uh, the Billy Goat Strut with um, an oatmeal cookie. Um, and because I always think that the raisin is very forward. So to me, I, uh, I usually gravitate towards this with a dessert style or a good sipper um, on a hot day. It's funny because when you said North American whiskey, I would have never, I would have never, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought twice. Like, why does that not say, you know, rye whiskey or anything? I, 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 yep. I just, yeah, I wouldn't have thought twice about that. Well, and, and what's really neat too, is that when I call in accounts and we do product launches or going to new markets and we bring this out and, and they say, oh, that's interesting, you know, because we emphasize the rye and I said, well, why doesn't say rye? And then you explain the story and they say, oh, okay, I get it. And a lot of people are really happy to see that there's another alternative style whiskey out there. Mm. It's not a bourbon. It's not a rye. It's not a wheat whiskey. You know, so it's nice for them to say, oh, it's a North American whiskey. So people can really start affiliating their own flavor profiles based on what they're getting out of this. Because now we essentially have two countries with quality products that we're blending and bottling at Kentucky Artisan. Um, and, and people can really paint their own story behind it. Yeah, that, that raisin is definitely there. See, yeah, that, and it that's really right. is. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a lot of dried fruit. I know. Yeah, uh, we work with some other uh, writers here in town, and in particular, one uh, uh, Michael Beach is a great friend of ours, and, oh, yeah. and and he immediately said that too. He says, "Man, that's a lot of dried fruit." And I says, "It's good, isn't it?" <laughs> yeah, of course, that's. We were sipping around around the holidays, so you know, you have that and a piece of fruitcake, and you know, you're pretty much in heaven. Maybe not yeah. fruitcake, but <laughs> yeah, but the the whiskey definitely. Yeah, and it, it just sits on your tongue nicely too. That's, I mean, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, we do one of the cocktails with it too because we mentioned earlier about the rye. Um, so if we're doing a, a pre-batch cocktail at our distillery, or for example, we're working with Third Term Brewery down the road, and they do Whiskey Wednesdays where they do live music, and other than their beer, they they feature our whiskeys. And uh, we do it with either a, a a cranberry with a splash of lemon and a ginger ale, or we do it with a splash of uh, lime in it. Um, so again, it's at acidity now that'll cut it a little bit back and even now introduce you a lot more flavor into it. Interesting. I need to I need to start adding some citrus to uh, to some of my whiskeys. I'm not good oh, about yeah. that. Yeah, you always you always should have mints or uh, excuse me, limes and lemons in your drawer. Cause I know of course now we're entering mojito season. So limes are always mm -hmm. prevalent in my drawer. Yeah. I just, it's, it's funny though. Like I get to, I don't know why, and I should probably be better about it, but like I have something and I have it neat and I enjoy it like that. And so I only drink it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, versus, you know, sometimes I feel like you should probably, um, you know, add a little bit of water or like you said, add some citrus or, you know, something else just so you can enjoy it differently. Yes. Uh, I just have a, a habit of when I, when I try it and I like it, it's like, I'm just going to stick with that. Sure, uh, sure. And there, and there, I should, I should probably branch out a little bit more and uh, be able to experience it in some different ways. It's, it's tough because you know a lot of the brands and a lot of the uh, the expressions that are out of the market, not just ours, but bourbon in general. You know, a lot of people drink it because their grandfather, their father drank it, and, mm. and they have a whole time altering it because it works. So I'm not going to change if it, it works. Um, so now you're starting to get into a lot more of the experimentation, and I can even tell you, you know, at one time a couple of years ago. 
we worked with Wes Hazel, um, who was one of Brown Foreman's wonderful blenders. And he was involved with a lot of the early times of for old Forrester blending and of course Woodford. And he worked with Lincoln Henderson. So, you know, we're going back 20, 25, 30 years ago. Um, and when we would do blends with him, it was fascinating to hear him, but we would do blends at 40 proof. That's the only way we ever did blends. That's the only way we ever drank it when we would sit down to do it. So I always tell people, look, if 88 isn't your cup of tea, add some more water to it and try it. And then slowly mm -hmm. escalate or de-escalate the amount of water you're trying. Because every time you adjust that proof, you will get an entirely different style of whiskey. There's, I, and I find myself doing that with like high proofs is all, you know, have it neat, try it out, add a little bit of water, see how it changes, you know, maybe some of them, because there are some I'd rather have with an ice cube, whether it's the, uh, the melting that I enjoy, or just the temperature of the liquid itself. Um, yeah, I just, I, I always like that 88, the, the whiskey row, like I like it the way it is. And so I would have yeah. a tough time so adding to water to that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. And my wife's the same way. You know, she says, just get me what I like. And I, and I know that's a whiskey row. And, and I said, you sure don't? Nope. Nope. This is, this is the way I like it. That's, it works for me on a Friday night. That's all I want. So I, I absolutely get it. I absolutely get it. And, and one of the nice things that when we'll sometimes do uh, VIP tastings at our distillery, you know, we'll also do a tasting of the distillate, you know, saying the distillates, mm. you know, are no more higher than 160. So even coming off at 140 or 130, we'll even cut it a little bit because you taste a 130 off of this lid off of still, I mean, it just burns you. You taste 100 proof for 110, it's a lot more palatable. And then you start getting the 90, it's like, well, this is really good. Sure. And then that's when it usually ends up entering the barrel because we'll enter uh, Whiskey Row at 110 in the barrel. Um, and that's oh. where we usually find where we've, we enjoy it. Now we can go up to 120. Some of our clients that we contract to still for do, uh, but, but very, very few, very, very few. Is there, how, now how, the Billy Goat Strut, is this, um, I mean, unlike the Whiskey Row where there's been different versions of it, is this one more consistent in terms of what's going to come out every time? Correct. So that is more consistent. The, the only change that we've done with the Whiskey Row, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, did I send you the 375 or the 750? Uh, the 750 of the Whiskey Row, the 375 of the Billy Goat Strut. Okay, so beautiful. So that is the difference of the Billy Goat Strut. The 375, if you notice, is actually it's 110 proof. And we don't tell people a lot of that until they actually try it. The 750 that I have is 90 proof. Same really? batch, just cut two differently, um, and obviously more increase of volume. But some people, like you said, have started to request a higher proof stuff. So we said, okay, let's offer the 375 at a 110, and then let's offer the 90 uh, at a 750. So when a lot of our tour guests come into our place or they're out in the market and they're purchasing, they'll buy both. Um, because you know, not everybody has a, uh, you know, a DMA or an Anton Parr in their, in their fridge. So, you know, one cube can alter it to two cubes. So they really don't know what proof they are, but obviously you're going to get the consistent proof out of this. So they'll start off with a 90 and then they'll go to the 110. Cause if you go mm. to the 110 and the 90, it's going to alter that 90 considerably. This, that doesn't drink like a 110, even after having the 88 whiskey row. Which, which is what we wanted. So we wanted that yeah. higher proof. We wanted to meet the customer demand for that, but we didn't want it to be lighter fluid. We yeah. wanted to say, look, this is good. Now we could have probably taken it up higher, but 110 was just kind of our, our spot where we said, this is good. This is still very yeah. palatable and it's not, uh, it's not lighter fluid. It's great. Yeah. That's a, I hate the word, but it's a very smooth 110. It's such a, it's, it's a cop yeah. out to use smooth, I think, no, but that. you know what, but it's just, but it really is like, it doesn't, like you said, it's not, um, it doesn't burn, you know, burn from yes. like the ethanol from that alcohol taste. Like you want the spice. If I'm having rye, especially something at 110 or something that's rye forward, I want to taste the rye. I don't want to just taste a burning 
you know, alcohol drink. Like that's just not as fun to, to enjoy. Right, um, so right. this one, this, I mean, this is super flavorful. I really like this one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it was, it was very enjoyable. Like I said, you know, our master distiller Jade, um, you know, has really worked extensively with both the distillers as well as doing this blend. And this is his Kentucky artisan and, and uh, his rye that's in there. So um, as I, as you mentioned before, you know, making the cuts along the process, you know, our, our, our facility isn't uh, isn't overly mechanical, um, so there's not there's no alarms, there's no buzzards, there's no computer screens. So you find that our guys, you know, do a lot of feeling of, of the water pipes to make sure our cooling water uh, or condenser is running with the way it should, and and our boiler is running. So it's it's a lot of sight and see. So when you mention the cuts, um, you know, we go through an extensive process to make the good cuts, so we know that that those hearts and real good alcohols are going into the barrel for the product. Yeah, that's. This is outstanding. I really like both of these. Um, I think that the hard part is with the whiskey row. Now I want to taste all of them. And so that's because <laughs> really I, I think it's, I mean, that's got to be fun, especially if they're, you know, accessible or you've had, you know, the ability to, to have them all. Sure. Um, I think that would be something so fun to try out as it changes from batch to batch. Yeah. And, you know, and that was the thing, too, because we wanted to create a story. We wanted people to keep coming back from a consumer perspective. But I can tell you that, you know, that was one of the things that, that I credit uh, uh, um, um, Trey Zeller, who started uh, Trey or uh, Jefferson's as well as his father, Chet. Um, that's one of the beautiful things that they did with the oceans is, you know, they wanted people to keep coming back because every ocean's excursion is going to get a different flavor profile mm -hmm. and it's going to be different juice going in there. It's going to be different ages. So you find now that you start getting people coming back for more because they either a want the entire collection or b they want to be able to have compared to because and i've had conversations with tour guests in our in our facility they said you know look if you ever see batch number nine let me know because i have seven ten and eleven and god forbid you're the one that's missing eight and nine because you want it in unison so yeah. you know we mentioned a lot of the black market sales going on and that's a lot of what it is is that people want that whole expression or that whole experience um, as opposed to just one and then the other. It's, uh, it's like the folks that are dying to spell out a certain uh, name with horses. <laughs> yes, it's it's a brilliant marketing strategy because oh, it keeps them coming back. And, and people, I, mean, I see people digging in there for the you know for that certain letter or that certain color, and, and it's just it's it's fascinating. I I always say too, and and of course now I, I'm I'm in my 40s, so I, I like to make fun of now other 40 year olds, but. I've seen 40-year-old men in full-blown sprint running into the liquor store because they caught wind of something being available. Yeah. Full-blown. Yeah. So the, it's great. The A is in there, and it's facing left. I need to have that. <laughs> yeah. Or or a buddy said, look, I can only buy one, so I put it behind yeah. the, uh, the cherry cordial in aisle four, second shelf up. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's great. Go, it's great. Go look, go look behind the diapers. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's an right. S. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, I love yeah, it. It's yeah, just, it's, but it, it's marketing genius. I mean, it really is. Absolutely, Every, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you got to give give credit where credit is due. Well, and of course, in your profession, and I know you can enlighten me on this too. I, I've I've deemed bourbon with the forty plus. Of course, growing up in the seventies and the eighties, um, it, it's the new version of the baseball cards, and we all yeah. remember how big baseball cards were back in the day, and how you used to trade. But God forbid you didn't have the set. You know, you had one through one hundred and one, but you were missing. 80 to 84 you were dying to find those 80 to find them yeah. didn't matter who, and it didn't matter who it was no and that was the thing 
you know, it, had to have it could it, have though. been Paul Molitor, but it could have been sure. Ozzy Ian, or, you know, it, it could have, you know, you wanted Jose Canseco, but you ended up with his brother, you know, yep. so it was one of those things, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is. And that's, you know, it's funny because like, I have, you know, you, uh, when you start paying attention to things and, uh, I think you, you start to realize like, there's a lot of really good bourbon out there. And I love anybody I've talked to in bourbon has mentioned about how, you know, community, how that community feel exists, regardless if it's, you know, people in Kentucky or Colorado or whatever. It's like, you're not, Whiskey Row is not going to take down Old Forester. So Old right. Forester is not really worried, but they want the industry. It's like, it's almost like they want the industry as a whole to be in a good place. Right. Um, and so I think that part of it is so cool how you have that sense of community where everybody's trying to help each other out, mm -hmm. uh, just make the products as good as they can make the industry as good and, and as healthy as it can. Um, just as a whole, whether it's the people that are involved, the process, um, you know, the distribution, the sales, like all that stuff, it seems like it's just, everybody wants it to go well. And I think that part's awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say, especially coming out of COVID, um, you know, when we shut down cause tours just stopped. And you saw that a lot of the manufacturing facilities were still making whiskey, but now they got into hand sanitizer. Yeah. And then, you know, it, they got to a point too where they started to have to charge a little something for it just to cover some of their overhead. But, you know, a lot of these distilleries were giving it away to, the, you know, the ambulance and the police station, the fire station, and then a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the heroes in our community. So it, we, we really found ourselves bonding together too, because, you know, what had happened with our industry as well is that if you were an essential manufacturing personnel and you were on this hand sanitizer, they sent you home um, because you couldn't go into on-premise. You couldn't call on restaurants and bars. You couldn't do ride-alongs with your distributors. Single barrel poles came to a standstill because the other thing is, heaven forbid, you are the distillery that's making hand sanitizer and you have a COVID outbreak. Nobody yeah. would then buy your hand sanitizer because sure. at the time, is it in the hand sanitizer? So it, it really went through a ripple effect and we really banded together and, and you found that a lot of people were helping each other out, say, you know, look, I'm trying to manufacture, but the, the company that was producing, let's say, for example, our yeast can't get it to us till next week. You have a surplus of yeast and we know it'll taste different, but we need to keep working to pay the yeah. bills. So a lot of people in the industry really chipped in and helped us out and helped and we helped them as much as we could. And we did promotions as best we could. And so, yeah, I mean, we really had a band together and, and it brought us a lot, a lot more closer. It's, I, I guess, I, until you said that, I've never really thought about it, but do you think in terms of like what you just said, where it may not just be the distilleries that were affected, like it might not just be, you know, at Whiskey Row that, that things are affected, but now you're getting a different strain of yeast because the COVID shutdown affected a farmer or whatever. Yep. Is that something that in two, three, four, five years, you're going to start seeing some, maybe not, I don't want to say inconsistencies, but maybe differences yes. in certain whiskeys because of different, different, you know, um, ingredients that were used based on availability or, um, you know, not being able to go with the, the people or the farmers that you were used to going with to create a consistent flavor that people are used to. Yes. And that's the thing, you know, especially in the bourbon and the whiskey business, we don't know what we don't know until another four more years. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I have a feeling that the barrels that were manufactured, both of the large guys as well as the small guys will be impacted somehow. Now, the, the fortunate thing, even though COVID and, and everything that, that the country and the world went through during that time was very sad and very trying. You also find though, too, that, that the industries that make the good adjustments will thrive. Mm. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember, we had uh, um, Buffalo Trace had one of the warehouses, one of the walls fall. 
and it was, oh, and it, was yeah. terrible, it was terrible tragedy because they lost barrels the wall fall this historic beautiful building you know was crumbling blah 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 and they were going to rebuild it but but that nostalgia of that warehouse was no more so that will for always now be deemed the building that fell but on the other side of that though they dumped that that was eh taylor juice it got more sun because there was no wall protecting from the sun and the heat they released that as the as the tornado bourbon and they made a killing for it. Um, I have a feeling that there's going to be something that comes out of Jim Beam after their warehouse. You know, it was so sad when their warehouse built down in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Something will come out of that. Um, you know, Barton had a warehouse that crumbled a couple of years ago. Something will come out of that. So yeah. um, the, the industry would not survive beer, wine, or any industry if they didn't adjust based on some of the triumphs that we've had in the past to say this is better. The other thing that I'll say, too, about COVID, and in particular in our industry, but just as a global it forced people to do things that they normally wouldn't do or force them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which in a lot of ways, as we know, is especially as you get older, you get so comfortable in the way you do things. And in the distilling process, you know, we've been doing it for over hundreds of years. And all of a sudden now we had something that hit us. It was the first pandemic of our generation and said, okay, what are we doing wrong? What can we do to be better? What can we do to either invest in our infrastructure? What can we do to make it better? So it forced the people. And again, like I said, at the end of the day, something positive will come out of this in either as an individual or a distillery or as an industry as a whole. Yeah. I, I mean, like you said, you had, uh, you've had some events occur that would at the time seem catastrophic, really, like in, in terms of, you know, walls collapsing and stuff. And then somebody said, well, wait a second, we can, we can use this at this point. It's over We're, we've moved past it, you know, and yeah. in 10 years, is there going to be a batch coming out in 2030? That is the, you know, COVID release or, or something, you know, along those obviously more uh, gently titled, but you know, like something along those lines that, that is a, you know, in remembrance of 2020 or, um, you know, and it's going to be able to be taken advantage of, you know, and hopefully um, work out more positively for the people that were affected by it, especially. Sure, sure, sure. Well, and that's one of the nice things about our industry too, is that, you know, we realize that we're in a very, uh, a, a very, uh, a very fun industry, a very lucrative industry, a very heavy tax industry. Um, but we also know too, that we have to be conscious of, you know, look, our products lead to alcoholism in a lot of extents. We can market to children because they're not of age. Um, so, you know, we also find that we have to give back in a number of different balances. And one of the ways that if we look at it, you know, once we get out of the next six months and shots start become more prevalent and masks start coming off and people start getting back mm-hmm. to quote unquote the norm, that we may be able to look back and say, okay, we, we made this during 2020. Mm-hmm. It's four years old now. Damn, it's really good. So now what can we do? Can, can we make a donation to a nonprofit? Can we give back to the hospitals? Can we give back to the fire departments? Can we give back to the police department? So now all of a sudden you're drawing a marketing campaign. It works for us. It works for them. It has a story. And then you, uh, and then you continue on. And then at the same time, though, let's just say some distilleries had made phenomenal juice during 2020 for whatever reason. That 2020 year has now come and gone. Mm-hmm. And there's only a certain amount of barrels. So now it's like, do you look at it? Do you hold some back? Do you release it all? What do you do with it? So that's why we're always asking the question how we can evolve as a brand, as a distillery and as an industry. Well, and also how about the, the, I mean, again, you're talking about what happened in 2020, as opposed to like the farming that was going on that was shut down, you know, is that something that there could be a shortage of because maybe some of the farming was shut down or that was affected and somewhere in that production line that um you know there was less goods going i mean like i know 
you know, like look at lumber right now, you know, the, the price yeah. of lumber in general, like, is that going to happen with whether it's wheat or corn or rye or something like that, where the prices are going to fluctuate? Like, are we going to see some sort of a spike in pricing because, um, you know, it's, it, it was hit with the farming industry. I mean, again, things I, I don't think I've really ever thought about with how it could affect uh, the, just the industry as a whole and not right now, maybe in a couple of years. Yeah, you know, and, and I can even tell you from a compliance standpoint, working with the federal government, you know, uh, if you go back four years ago, they they offered within a bill, they offered an initiative because there were so many distilleries open up, they offered uh, an initiative where the federal excise tax per proof gallon went from $13.50 to $2.70. Mm. And the thought behind the federal government is that you would reinvest in your infrastructure from the difference of the 270 to 1350 based on overall proof gallons that went out the door as a finished case good. That's happened. People hired more, we built more, we infrastructure more, we put new stills in, we came more efficient, we went more green, all these other things. Well, that was supposed to run out uh, December 31st of 2020. So now what had happened was everybody then started to overproduce and over uh, um, and over manufacture a finished case goods so they could get that incentive. Then the government came back and said, hey, look, this was a really good thing considering the year that we just had, now we're gonna up it now until further notice. So now that has allowed us now to uh, reinvest in our infrastructure. But, uh, you know, I, I can even go back to four or five years ago when all the large guys and the distillers really started coming online, everybody double capacity to keep up with the demand of bourbon. There was a shortage of barrels then, new barrels for us to fill. So we were scrapping for barrels. Now all those barrels are four and five years, they're getting dumped. Now there's an abundance of used barrels. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing an abundance of used barrels. And now we're saying, what the hell do we do with, our, with ourselves? Because again, we want to be sustainable. But four or five years ago, when everybody's buying barrels, oak was going up considerably. Now oak is slowly catching up with the price. The price is going down, but now we have an overabundance of used barrels. So now there's even talk of saying, how can, how can we work some type of a whiskey bourbon using a used barrel? Because hmm. if you make a whiskey bourbon, you can only use a new barrel. Yeah. So we're talking about that. We're talking about farmers. Um, I can tell you that one of the biggest problems that we're having now from the infrastructure problem is the mash. You know, if we go back three or four years ago, the meat per pound on the open market, meat was very good. Farmers got into it and they were taking as much mash as we could produce. Now the price dropped out of the bottom on meat. Now there's less farmers. Now there's more mash than there are farmers. Now the distilleries are paying to get rid of the mash. Four or five oh. years ago, we couldn't give it away or we gave it away. Farmers took it. Now we have to pay the farmers to get rid of it. So it, it's, it's a constant evolution of things of just because it's good now doesn't mean it'll be good later. Because again, we live and die four or five years at a time. Yeah. I've, I've never, I mean, that's another point you brought up. Like I, I wouldn't even even thought about that. That wouldn't have even crossed my mind in terms of like the mash and where it goes. And, and yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, the, the effect, the trickle down effect is just, it's nuts. And it's crazy how one thing can affect the entire line. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and if we don't have corn, we're not making whiskey. If we don't have whiskey, we're not making mash. If the mash isn't being picked up, we're not paying for the mash and the cows don't get fed and then farmers aren't fed. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, we're, we're all involved with this whole and they actually deem distilling as an agricultural product because mm. of the product that comes in and the product that goes out and then the product that's consumed. Sure. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. All right. I don't want to take up your entire day. So tell me uh, right now in, in person. Uh, tours, everything going right now? Tours, everything is going uh, going on right now. Um, I can tell you our distillery in particular, we're still on the re reservation uh, uh, situation. But as of tomorrow, the state of Kentucky opens up 100%. Uh, 
Oh, wow. So that may change tomorrow. Uh, we're going to try to slowly ease into it as opposed to just opening up the floodgates. Most of the distilleries are still on reserve situations, um, but uh, but Kentucky is uh, is coming back. Restaurants are open and they're going to be at 100% capacity tomorrow. I have a feeling this weekend will be like Derby, where it'll yeah. be, people will be going nuts. Um, so we're excited about that. Uh, but yes, we're open for tours. I encourage everybody to come in, see the facility, shake the hands of the distillers. They're not behind glass walls. You can talk to the bottling line. You can talk to everybody. Nice. Um, so it's a, it's a very engaging atmosphere. And of course we make wonderful whiskey products. What, what is the, what is your distribution like right now? I know you said it's, you know, it's expanding. We're getting to 30 States. Uh, where, where's distribution? Well, I guess it'd be easier. Where is it not distributed and what's online sales like? Uh, I, so there are two questions, two answers to that. Um, a distribution is working its way from California. Um, working with our customer out in Levesque, um, because they have distribution in all 50 States. Uh, as well as going into, uh, um, quote, unquote, the non-states into Puerto Rico and a lot of the Virgin Islands. Um, so they are handling distribution for us. The 30 states are predominantly non-control states, even though they are going into some like Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, they're, of course, going into the big five. They're going into New York. Uh, they're going into Texas. They're going into Illinois. They're going into Vegas, California, Florida. Um, so the big five or the big six are being covered. Um, some inland states, mostly in the Northeast, are being uh, the Midwest, we really don't get much traction, even though we like to get in there because there's not a lot of whiskey opportunities for variety there. So we like to penetrate that market and, and let people know that, hey, this whiskey is good, come and get it. Um, and then from the direct-to-consumer standpoint, Kentucky just went into the direct-to-consumer full-fledged. Um, now, there is an asterisk with that being affiliated because right now we can only ship to reciprocating states that we have governmental agreements with. Um, it's up to 13 now. It's growing every day or at least every month. Um, and then, so we're working with that and, and I would suspect in the next three months, Sam Tabor, our marketing director at the distillery and Liz Ratliff, our tour center, uh, uh, managers working on that. So you will be hopefully in the next three months, you'll be able to order from our distillery direct to consumer of all our in-house products. And hopefully fingers crossed, we're working with Pinot Ricard that we can start shipping Jefferson's from our facility as well. I know, uh, I know Arizona is on that list of reciprocating states. So that definitely makes me happy uh, yes, yes, for yes, myself. You know, if that's a selfishly, I'm very happy about that. I know I can go on to online and find some stuff. <laughs> you know, and it was good. And this goes back years ago, but you know, for there was, there was kind of that stronghold where both states, especially in Kentucky, some states wanted to bring in our stuff or our state wanted to ship in our bourbon. And some states said, no, we don't want it. And then they said, well, we're not going to take in your stuff. So California is kind of an, an oddity, meaning that they have car blanche to send wherever they want. So that's why you find a lot of brands are leaving Kentucky to go to California because then they can ship it from California out. So we're hoping that we don't have to do that anymore. And that's the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, social media, where's a good place for people to find you? So we are on uh, Instagram, social media, uh, Whiskey Row Bourbon, as well as Billy Goat Strut Whiskey. Uh, we are both on there. Um, and then, of course, we also have the uh, the Facebook uh, through KentuckyArtisanDistillery.com. Uh, and that's our website. And then, of course, Kentucky Artisan uh, Distillery through Facebook. Um, we're, we're starting what we were never really much presence, uh, presence on social media, only because we weren't really moving that case. So we were kind of in that bubble of Kentucky. But now that we're working mm -hmm. with Lebec, we're starting to emphasize more on the marketing components and doing a lot more fun things. And, and I'm starting to hire what I call younger people because they they know more about this than I do. So uh, so it's nice now that I'm starting to group in some younger yeah. people. And like, oh, here's what you need to do. And I, okay, all right, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, I funny. can't keep up anymore. You know, no. I, I remember when, when MySpace was the best thing ever. And now it's just like, oh, no, that's old news. 
yeah even facebook now you bring up facebook people are like really you're on facebook, <laughs> hey, you're on facebook? Are, are you enjoying the kid you know pictures of your grandkids i'm like yeah, yeah. Hey, nice. <laughs> i think what once i hit 40 it was like man i think you know I should probably get off of there uh you know but yeah. then i feel i find it's only people in our age bracket that are uh that are still on there so. oh yeah and, and you know and they're all kind of doing the same thing they're having kids taking trips and all that other stuff and uh yeah, yeah. So it, it's a good communication but yeah it, it it wasn't what it once was as far as a marketing proponent or, um, or a brand or a service or, or a product as it yeah. is, uh, you know, as it is now. But I think what's really cool though, is it, like, especially for us, like in Arizona, you know, we've got, uh, you know, limited availability here and, and we can, you know, there's a couple of smaller liquor stores where you can find some good bottles, but there's a lot of stuff we're not going to be able to find on our shelves out here. Um, so I think that has been a huge help with social media because you can go on and, you know, find people that are in Kentucky or in, you know, Tennessee who are uh, either in the whiskey industry or have a big following um, mm -hmm. of people in the whiskey industry. And you start looking around, you go, man, there's a lot of whiskey out there. Like there's a lot of yeah. people to have conversations with. And, and that social media side has definitely helped for me because I'm now I'm learning about brands um, and people that I would have never even knew known had existed. So like, it's been a huge right. help um, right. to be able to have that, that, you know, availability right in front of you. But uh, it's, it, there is so much of it out there that it can be a little overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but I, I will say to, like, as you mentioned, to your credit, um, you know, being able to, to interact with, uh, you know, bloggers and influencers and podcasts and all, it, it's allowed the smaller guys to really have a presence in the marketing because, Again, I don't have as much marketing dollars wood for reserve for sure. the smaller guys, um, and I don't have as much as a distribution footprint. So the smaller guys are really are really enjoying working with the other guys. And, and I often say too that it's it's I think it's uh, kind of raised the eyebrows of the bigger guys, and they're like, "Whoa, these these smaller guys are are really being creative." Yeah, you know, definitely. We, now we may have to look at them, and and you're starting to see now that a lot of the larger companies are kicking the tires of some of the smaller brands, the smaller distilleries, much like what Budweiser did you know, buying a lot of the smaller beer brands. They're mm -hmm. too big to make a small brand. So if we can't beat them, we're buying them. So yeah. you're starting to see now that trend as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's definitely fun to follow along and watch and, and just see how this kind of like this evolution happens with, uh, you know, the, the craft distilleries and, and they're popping up and then they become more popular and you start seeing more and more people get interested in them. And, you know, they try them and they realize it's really good whiskey and you, you can branch out from, again, no offense to any of the bigger companies, but uh, there's a lot of really good whiskey out there that's not made by Heaven Hill or Buffalo Trace. You know, like yeah. there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Exactly. Um, and exactly. I think that so that social media side helps a lot for people to go, hey, what is this? Like, you know, great packaging. It's it's catchy to the eye. Like it's got a historic look to it. And then you start to learn about the brand itself um, and understand like that, you know, Whiskey Row is doing something that's really cool and different than, you know, what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and you try it and you like it and it's like, okay, like, let's keep going back to this. I, you know, I, I dig this stuff. This is great. So I think it's, it's really yeah, cool. You're absolutely right. And a lot of the smaller guys also, you know, we know the bigger guys are there, but we also, you know, support a lot of the smaller guys, you know, and people don't know that there's a very good distillery in Buffalo, uh, Buffalo, New York, you know, called Hartman and there's Black Button in Rochester. And, uh, there's Staley Distillery in Dayton, Ohio, and they're all making wonderful products and they're doing social yeah. media out the wazoo. And so it, it's nice to see them really getting their share of love and, and endorsing their products. Yeah, I've, I've noticed a lot, especially with Colorado distilleries. Um, there's a lot of really good whiskey coming out of Colorado right now. And yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. it's really cool to see how they're working together. And, you know, I've had a couple of people from Colorado distilleries on and they're going like, mm -hmm. we are not going to beat the Kentucky 
distillery guys like oh, it, no. no matter what right, right. and so it's like our we're gonna make good whiskey we're gonna get it in people's hands and if you like it drink it order it again right and if not like if you really want to have something because it's from kentucky and and by all means do it but right. um as much as there's a competitiveness it's like it's just everybody's trying to just make good whiskey and i think that part that part of this industry is really cool Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and everybody's trying to find their own niche, their, their own, you know, scalability as far as, you know, getting into the market. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, Colorado knows that they won't be Kentucky, but I'll also say Kentucky knows that they won't be Colorado beer, even though we produce good beer here with micro distillers, but we'll never be the size of Coors, you know, or no. we'll never be the size. So, so we appreciate that. And we're like, okay, everybody's good here. You know, you do that really well and we do this really well and, and yeah. we work together when we need be. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. It makes it all that all that much better. So yeah, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Awesome. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for sending these bottles out to me and let me try these out with you. I really appreciate it and definitely appreciate your time. My pleasure. Pleasure having you. And uh, uh, thank you to all the audience for uh, chiming in. I, uh, I look forward to uh, hearing uh, the feedback. Definitely. I'll make sure I, uh, I let you know how it goes. Yes, please. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you.